0: Last Sunday, we started our study of the letter to the Philippians, and so I want to have you turn there if you have your Bibles. Uh, We're still in chapter one. If you don't have a Bible with you, the passage is also printed in the worship guide, and you are also welcome to use one of the pew Bibles in the rack in front of you. Just a little bit of context and a reminder, refresher from last week about the context of this letter. So, Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul, most likely around 62 AD. Uh, And he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. And as we saw last week, uh, Philippi was the first place in Europe to receive the gospel, to hear the good news of Jesus. And it's about 10 years later now that Paul writes this letter. So, he was in Philippi, his second missionary journey. He uh, took part of in, in three missionary journeys, and it was the second in which he went to Philippi. So that was probably around 52 AD or so. So it's 10 years later, and Paul is writing a letter to the Philippians. And what becomes clear in the letter is that he is in prison. Specifically, he's in Rome, writing from Rome under house arrest. We're going to talk more about that because it's going to come out in the verses we're looking at this morning, um, but what we will continue to see throughout this letter is that Paul had a very deep and special relationship with the Philippians. In fact, last week we used the word partnership to describe it. To describe it, he viewed himself and the Philippian believers in a partnership together in making Jesus known in the Roman Empire. So I want to read for us our passage this morning. Last week we looked at verses one through eleven. And this morning, we are going to look at verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word. Let's ask God to uh, dwell with us through His Spirit and to teach us from His Word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, open Your Word to us this morning. We don't want this to be a meaningless activity in which we just read Your Word like we might read uh, anything else. Your Word is active. It is living. And by Your Word, we are drawn into Your story. We encounter You, and our lives are changed. And so that's our prayer this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would change our lives, regardless of where we presently find ourselves in terms of belief or circumstance. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praise be to God for those large "you are here" signs. You know what I'm talking about? Those signs that usually have a big red star helping to locate you, whether it be in a museum, uh, an airport or A mall. And I'm that stubborn kind of person who, when I, especially in a mall, for example, when I walk in and I'm not exactly sure of where the store that I want to go is located, but I tell myself, oh, I'll be able to find it pretty easily. And then after five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of walking in circles, I finally tell myself, okay, now I have to go locate the big you are here sign to figure out where I am in the first place and then see where in relation to that, this store that I want to go to is. Well, I, I think this concept of the you are here sign with the big red star is helpful a helpful analogy for us as we think about locating ourselves in life. And the reality is, is that we all have a you are here sign, whether we know it or not. There's something that we are drawing from, something that we are using for our reference point to help us understand life, to answer the big questions of life, such as, who is God? Who am I? What is this world in which I live? Um, how, to, how has it gone wrong? What is wrong with it? How is it made right? Those big questions of life, are you are here sign or map, provides the answers to those questions. Well, when we come to the Apostle Paul. This morning in Philippians 1, writing under house arrest, not knowing whether he would be released or ultimately executed, it's very clear that for a guy in his situation, in his circumstances, he has to be operating by some you are here sign that is actually um, worthwhile, that is actually causing him to flourish, especially given the fact that we see one of the themes throughout this letter is joy. In other words, Paul, in his very difficult circumstances, is writing with joy for the joy of other people. Paul had a bigger story that he was living by, a bigger story that he operated under. And we're going to examine what that story is in our time this morning. And we're going to see that this story gave him perspective beyond difficult circumstances and difficult people. So right off the bat, he begins here in verse 12 in this section of the letter um, by reminding the brothers and sisters in Philippi that what has happened to him, basically his imprisonment, has actually worked for the advancement of the good news of Jesus. It's actually worked for the advancement of, of the kingdom. He says that in verse 12. And then he goes on in verse 13 to say that so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So here's the deal. Here's the situation that Paul finds himself in. He had appealed to Caesar, the emperor. Uh, he had been imprisoned for um, basically his proclamation of the good news of Jesus because. It was a provocative message. Think about it. The message of the gospel, um, you could summarize it by the claim, Jesus is Lord. Now, in the Roman Empire, everybody knew that Caesar was Lord, including Caesar himself. That was his belief and understanding of himself. He was in charge. He was the ruler. And he was the divine one, essentially, that um, had leadership over his empire. And so for the early Christians, such as Paul, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is actually King and Lord. It was provocative, and it was dangerous in the eyes of the officials of the Roman Empire. And so he is imprisoned for this. It's not the first time. But in this situation, he's basically awaiting to find out if he's going to be released or executed, as we said. And so what happens is he is taken to Rome, Um, and he's under house arrest awaiting his trial. And he's under the care or the watch of these special guards that he refers to uh, in verse 13 as the imperial guard. Most likely, uh, the exact situation that Paul was in was that he was allowed private lodging for himself under house arrest, but there was a soldier, like I said, to guard him, But it was most likely the case that this soldier was chained to Paul, or Paul was chained to the soldier so that he could not escape. All right, so hopefully you have some kind of mental picture, um, an idea of Paul's circumstances and what exactly is going on here. It might be helpful, as best as you can, to imagine yourself in that situation. We talked about this a little bit last week. What might your thoughts be? What might your emotions be? I'm sure you would have a lot of thoughts, a lot of emotions, like I would. And what is incredibly remarkable about the Apostle Paul is that in this letter, we are basically getting insight into his thoughts and his emotions in the set of circumstances that he finds himself. He uses this word, um, advance, in verse 12. So think of the church in Philippi. They're sad for Paul. They, they have uh, this deep and special relationship, this partnership with Paul. One of the reasons, Paul reveals this in chapter 4, that he is writing this letter is to thank them for a financial gift that they had given to him. And so there's this deep partnership that they share, and that's why um, in the verses from last week, Paul used the word partnership to capture, that he is thankful for their partnership in the gospel. So it's a special relationship. They know Paul, and Paul knows them. We looked last week at three very real people that Paul would have known in the church of Philippi, assuming that they were still alive. In Acts 16, we have the narrative of when Paul goes to Philippi, and he encounters three people, a woman named Lydia, a girl who is possessed by a demon and is enslaved to men, And then finally, the Philippian jailer. All of these people, these three individuals, come to know Jesus. They come to believe the truth about him. They give their lives to him, and they become the foundation of the church in Philippi. So it's cool and and helpful to have specific names here. These aren't just um, people in general, but they're people that Paul got to know and that he loved, and he is so grateful for their care and for their partnership in the gospel. So They're sad, right? They're sad because of the situation that Paul finds himself in. They're fearful for Paul's life, and they're probably fearful for their own lives. Connecting the dots. All right, if this could happen to Paul for being completely committed to Jesus, this could potentially happen to us too if we are fully committed to Jesus. And so Paul wants to encourage them. That's basically the basis for Paul writing to them. He wants to encourage them. And he starts off by saying, look, I know it looks bad. I know it looks really, really bad. But you actually have to see something going on behind the scenes. And unless you look with eyes of faith, unless you look with discernment, unless you're in tune with Jesus and his spirit, you'll miss it all. But here's the deal. Guess what? These circumstances, my imprisonment, are actually working to advance the cause of Jesus in the world. The word advance that uh, Paul uses is the same word that he uses um, where it's translated progress later on in chapter 1 in verse 25, where he talks about the progress of the Philippians' faith. Um, This word was often used for the progress of an army or an expedition. And so what Paul is basically getting at is that his imprisonment is actually opening new doors. It's creating new opportunities, opportunities that wouldn't have been imaginable unless Paul was actually in the situation that he's in. Think about the larger picture here. So the emperor and those under the emperor are are trying to basically stamp out individuals like Paul. They're threatened by the message of Jesus as Lord. And so their belief is that if we um, arrest, if we uh, eventually execute, then that will eventually cause this movement to die. But the opposite happens. It turns against them. Paul, like I said, most likely the case was chained to soldiers. Now, you probably just, even if your um, exposure to the Bible is limited, you probably know enough about the Apostle Paul to know that he was a pretty bold guy. So don't you think it's probably the case that those guards who most likely changed and, and alternated, what do you think they were hearing from Paul? They were hearing nonstop, most likely, the good news of Jesus, Paul unpacking the story of Jesus for them and how it's actually part of the larger story that is true, that God is telling in the world. And so the gospel is progressing. It's advancing despite the opposition of those who are opposed to it. There was an article um, from maybe three years ago uh, about ISIS Um, you don't hear as much in the news, um, uh, at least in recent uh, days about ISIS. But in this article, um, a ministry leader um, from the Kurdish region of Iraq um, was interviewed and was talking about how his organization could barely keep up with the the number of converts that were coming in to Christianity, that were believing and following Jesus. Um, They would receive these refugees and Um, They would develop relationships with them, and there was a a strong desire um, among them to know more about Jesus and the Bible, and so that they would give Bibles to these people, and they would tell them the story of Jesus. And um, at one point, um, this ministry director says, people are very hungry to know about Christ, especially when they hear about miracles, healing, mercy, and love. Mercy and love. So, There was a contrast between what they were encountering and experiencing and then what they encountered and saw about Jesus within his people, love and mercy, and they were captivated by it. They were drawn to it. They wanted it for themselves. And he says, as terrifying and horrifying as ISIS is, they did us a favor. Can you imagine saying that? Despite how horrible and terrible ISIS is, they actually did us a favor. This is basically the exact same thing that Paul is saying in Philippians 1. Even though Caesar is dangerous and and horrible and all of that, he's actually doing us a favor. It's unpleasant in the moment. It's hard. It's difficult. These circumstances are. I'm not going to lie about that. But it's actually working in our favor. As far as making Jesus known in the world. This ministry director um, toward the end of this interview said, we just help people because we love them. And maybe the next time we visit, we tell them about Jesus and give them Bibles. We believe in the power of the word of God. We don't have many preachers. We don't have many missionaries, but we have the word of God that we're able to print, purchase, and deliver to the people and their children. He actually goes on to tell another remarkable story about a a local university or something that um, for a a comparative religion class wanted to compare the Bible to the Quran. And so they send Bibles to this university. Guess what? Um, Multiple students um, profess faith in Jesus from reading the Bible. And so, the school officials go to the government and say, look at what what has happened. Look what they've done. They eventually interview the ministry director, and he tells them, they asked for the Bibles. All that we did was giving them. But you see how this works. It didn't just work in ancient times. It works in the world today. What on the surface might appear as though it is drowning out Jesus and his movement, what is ultimately killing and bringing us harm is actually being used by Jesus for good in the world. Paul is pushing the Philippians, and he's pushing us toward a radically different approach to life. You could say that this is a stubborn approach to life. It it really is. You know, we we, we tend to think of stubborn as maybe um, somebody who is cynical, um, but Paul is stubborn because of his joy. There's no way that Paul should be joyful given his circumstances on the surface as the world looks in. This man should not be writing with joy for the joy of others, but he is radically stubborn. How? Why? Because he's operating under a bigger story. And what is that story? Well, he's going to unpack this story really beautifully Um, in the beginning of chapter 2, but it's the story that he's unpacking throughout this letter. And he's already referred to it, and he refers to Jesus multiple times in these verses. It's the story of Jesus. Because how does the story of Jesus go? Jesus was opposed, and so they killed Jesus, but guess what happened? It actually caused the movement of Christianity to grow even more radically. And so Paul is learning to identify with his crucified but risen Savior. For those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, our story is the story of Jesus. It's the story that is told in the Bible, and it's the true story of the world. And this story, as we always talk about here at City church, it invites us in. It calls to us. It says to us, "This is the life-giving story. This is the true story. This is what you long for deep down inside. Take steps more deeply inside. But here's the thing. As we go deeper and deeper into the biblical story, we realize that true life is found in us giving away our lives. You can't miss this. And if this scares you, if this makes you feel vulnerable, I'm really sorry. It does me too. But there's no way around it in the Christian story. True life is found in giving away our lives to others because at the center of the story is the one who gave his life away for us. That we might be rescued, that we might be transformed and changed, and that we might be given a completely radically different approach and purpose In life, think about the implications. If if we live in this way and we have this approach, believing that what appears to be evil, what appears to be really bad and hard, God is actually able to use for good, do you realize the level of stubbornness that would create in us? I'm, I'm not saying that we would never fear. I'm sure the Apostle Paul feared greatly at different times. But I'm talking about the bigger picture of his life, when it really came down to it. When he was pressed, where did he find his validity? Where did he find his identity and purpose? It was in Christ and that story. And so he could look at the difficult circumstances and move forward with stubborn joy. This changes everything for us. Because as we look out at our world and we see um, all that's going on and we are overwhelmed and we think to ourselves, what could I possibly do to make a difference, whether it be here in our city, whether it be um, nationwide, whether it be global? I mean, it it, it crushes you when you begin to really consider it all and try to absorb it. But there's another way. And it comes through following the one who ultimately absorbed it on the cross. And that gives us a stubborn joy to move forward, to move out into the world each week, each day, with this radical stubbornness of joy that you can't see it yet, you can't see it fully, but Jesus is at work. It takes imagination for that, and we'll come back to that when we close. So I would encourage you. Um, on this point this morning. I, I was going to say we, but I'll speak personally, I get so discouraged when my plans don't go the way that I wanted them to go. I get so frustrated and cynical when people around me make life difficult for me. And in those moments, in those seasons, it's so easy for me to become so limited in my perspe- perspective. And when I become limited in my perspective, cynicism is not far behind, and I become so self-absorbed that as I look out at the world around me and all that is going on, I'm basically paralyzed. And so as I go through Philippians this summer, I'm really encouraged and I'm really excited about Jesus inviting me to Uh, deeper and deeper into the bigger story, the larger perspective, one that ultimately gives me stubborn joy. It's not just difficult circumstances that Paul finds himself in. He finds himself dealing with difficult people. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of of the gospel the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment what is going on here who is paul referring to it's hard to know he doesn't explicitly tell us their identity anywhere in this letter it's most likely the case that the who he's referring to is a group of of people a group of christians who are generally proclaiming a sound and true gospel, but who are at personal odds with Paul. And reading between the lines, um, commentators point out that it could be that basically there was jealousy and envy going on within this group of people that Paul is referring to. That basically they see this, op- they see this as an opportunity. Paul, the one who gets all the attention, the one who's viewed as this... Um, incredible missionary. It's an opportunity for them to maybe make a name for themselves. And so while they're preaching what is true, their motivation for doing it is skewed. Again, that's just reading between lines. It seems like something like that is going on. But whatever the case might be, there is a group that is making life difficult for Paul and those um, that look up to Paul. But notice Paul's attitude toward them. How does Paul relate to or respond to those who are making life difficult for him? In verse 18, he asked, he asked that question All right, what then? What, what should I do? What should you do? How should we think of these people? How should we respond to them? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What we have here is Paul so firmly and securely rooted in his identity in Jesus. Paul doesn't need to worry about competition with others. Paul doesn't need to worry about making a name for himself. His sole motivation is wrapped up in making a name for Jesus. I think this challenges us too as we approach the difficult people around us. Now, there's a difference between what we're talking about here and injustice. Those who are actively committing injustices towards you or, or that kind of thing. Um, the, the, these are two different things we're talking about. Here we're talking about something in the realm of, of rivalry and competition and jealousy. H- how should we handle that kind of thing in life? By remembering who we are in Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives us our identity. And this is uh, the beautiful thing for us who are followers of Jesus. Our identity, our well-being, our our, um, uh, validity in life is not dependent on who we are or what we do, but it's completely dependent on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And we get to receive that identity, and that identity makes us secure, it makes us safe. It makes us strong. It's actually a form of weakness to concern ourselves with rivalry and competition and jealousy. It actually shows that we are not confident in who we are. And ultimately, our confidence is in Christ. This is where Paul is coming from. This is why he's able to have this approach that he does. So, difficult people and difficult circumstances. We can't get away from these in life, can we? It's so frustrating, isn't it? Wherever we turn, there's another difficult circumstance. There's another place where somebody or other people are trying to make life difficult for us, or so we think. And all of these things, I'm going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, have the power, if we allow them to, to drain our faith, to um, shrink our imaginations. I want to share with you um, a quote, and we we actually have a slide for this. There are two slides back to back. Uh, I forgot to include the name of the woman who wrote the article. Um, But she says this, From beginning to end, the Bible calls us to adopt in imagination That helps us look beyond our own experience. Experience tells us prayers go unanswered. As the singer cries out in Psalm 22, My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. Experience tells us sinful, rebellious people get their way in the end. That the values of the world are profitable and preferable. As the psalmist says, In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. When the biblical writers call us to faith, they are calling us to reject this view of the world and instead foster in an active imagination that can see what God sees. I love that. And I love how she says in the very first line, from beginning to end, the Bible calls us to adopt an imagination that helps us look beyond our own experience. That's really what this comes down to. And it's why it is so challenging. It's why it's so stinking hard to um, have our imaginations uh, expanded because it comes so naturally and easily for us to focus on on our own experience. We can't see beyond it. And then we begin telling ourselves lies. We, we actually make things wor- maybe worse than they actually are. We exaggerate the circumstances that we find ourselves in, or we exaggerate what we perceive people are trying to do against us. Not that those things aren't real, but do you hear what I'm saying? That we have this uh, uh, tendency to actually make them worse. And it just makes everything worse for us. And it takes us further and further away from faith, and it shrinks our imaginations. And yet Paul had this ability to look beyond his own experience. He had this ability to reject a view of the world that would, we, we could label as cynical. And instead, he was able to foster his imagination to see what God sees. How do we do that? How do we reject the fallenness of the world? How do we reject the tendency to get to a point where we say, that has the final word, that's all there is, there is no hope? How do we reject that? How do we foster biblical imagination? Last week, we talked a little bit, uh, I think maybe toward the end of the sermon, about spiritual formation. And I really want to encourage you to view this summer as an opportunity. Uh, you know, I don't, it's funny how seasons work, um, but it usually seems like the beginning of each season, to some degree, represents a new opportunity. And there's something I think even more unique about the summer in that it's a, usually a little bit more low key for whatever reason, there's less going on. In fact, in the month of August, as a church family, we're going to do something we've never done before that we are going to call church, um, church-wide uh, sabbatical. And the only thing that we're going to do as a church is gather for worship on Sunday mornings. Um, our community groups are going to take a break, all of our other ministries, and we're going to um, provide you with um, basically spiritual formation guide, a guide for the month to help you really deliberately lean into Jesus and to enjoy new life in him. And so one of the ways that we expand our biblical imaginations is simply by reading Scripture. I, I, it sounds so basic. And, and even in saying it, there's hesitancy on my part um, because this is a struggle for us. It it's, can be hard to make time to um, read God's Word. Um, some of it is just that maybe you don't like to read, but I think a lot of it is, is just because we allow ourselves to get too busy, and we have far too many distractions in the culture around us. And so guess what it takes? It takes stubbornness. It takes a form of rebellion to look at all of those distractions and say, no, no, they can wait. I'm going to be with God. I'm going to dwell in his presence that I might receive his life, that I might have my character deepened, that I might be changed gradually so that I can actually serve God well in the world in a way that actually points others to life in him. Uh, back in the fall, or maybe it was the beginning of this year, we provided what we refer to as the indwell scripture reading guides. I think we need maybe more um, put out in, on the connect table in the lobby. Um, you can also find um, a digital version on our website. But I would encourage you to use something like that. Uh, I'm the kind of person who, need, who needs guides. I need helps. And, and so the Indwell Guide has been really helpful for me in my formation in Christ over the last um, several months. But I want to seriously invite you into this and view it as an act of rebellion because I, I think that's how we need to view it. It's um, so just part of our nature. We go with the, the grain of our culture and we do, we do, we do. Um, we're so um, distracted. We, at our midweek gathering this past week, we had a tremendous conversation um, about the loss of awe and wonder and how do we recover that, particularly as God's people so that we might point others to beauty. We have to have our imaginations expanded. And how are our imaginations expanded? We have to go to the bigger story, and that is God's word. We have to be trained and equipped day after day to see things as he sees them. The bigger story for Paul is the Jesus story. His life, his death, and his resurrection. Yes, there is crucifixion. Yes, there is pain, But ultimately, there is new birth. There is life. Um, One final quote that I want to share with you in closing comes from a theologian named Graham Tomlin. He says, faith needs imagination. The ability to imagine that things could be different, that what you see is not necessarily what you get. I think that summarizes Paul in Philippians so well. And that's what he's telling the Philippians. Look, you're looking at this situation, but but let me tell you this. What you see is not necessarily what you get. Join me, he's basically saying to his brothers and sisters. Join me imagining something different. Imagine with me the kingdom of Jesus coming to life in the world around us, through us. Imagine that with me. When Wayne uh, was introducing the confession of sin, he referred to a shooting that took place uh, in the neighborhood um, last Sunday night, um, around 11.30 p.m. It is so difficult when you look at a dead body on a corner to see more than what is actually there. It's so hard. And cynicism is so tempting in that moment because, trust me, as I was in that situation, I was quickly moving towards cynicism. Why do I live here? What's the point? What's the purpose? I'm not making a difference. Our church isn't making a difference. But do you see what was happening to me in that moment? I'm not seeing beyond my own present experience. And and that's okay to a degree. God is patient. God is kind. God actually wants us to respond to the fallenness of the world in that way. Because if we didn't, there'd be something wrong with us. And that's a danger, to become so cynical that it's like, whatever, it's not a big deal. God's patient with us. But he wants to change us. He wants to invite us into this experience beyond ourselves. And so it took time, but I had to come out of that. I had to remember, wait a second, this story is not limited to this moment. This story is not limited to all of the examples that I might look around uh, at in my city and say, brokenness, 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 tragedy, sin, hard circumstances, hard people. That's not the full picture. And what I had to come back to were all of the ways that I see God's kingdom coming to life in my own life and in the world around me, because those are just as real. And guess what? According to this story, the story that I live by, the story that you live by, those examples, those pictures, the ones of beauty, of redemption, of signs of life, those prevail in the end. That's the bigger picture. Let's pray. Father, get your word into us, that it might become a part of who we are, that it might shape the way that we look at the world, that it might shape the way that we relate to you. I pray over the course of this summer that you would renew our faith. I pray that you would help us to see the bigger picture and that you would give us a resilient, stubborn faith in you and your power. And what you are doing in the world. And I pray that that would lead us into deep joy. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.